0: Hello and welcome to Brainstorm. They're often called Ireland's Amazon rainforest, places bursting with species that aren't found anywhere else. Bogs hold a special place in the Irish imagination. They inspire painters and poets and occasionally throw up offerings from the past, like butter, hidden oak roadways, and even bodies. And yet bogs have long been either exploited or neglected, either cut out and burned or bagged or treated as soggy, barren, infertile wastelands that need to be altered so they can be used for something else. Many bogs have been mined to near oblivion. But their ability to store and suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at an unparalleled rate may be the thing that saves them from extinction. To talk about the potential of our soggy bogs, I'm joined by Raymond Flynn, hydrologist in Queen's University, Belfast, and Catherine Farrell, ecologist in Trinity College in Dublin. You're both very welcome. Thank you. Uh, Raymond, just to start, you grew up in, in Crumlin. You have memories, you said, of cycling up to the Hellfire Club, taking walks up there and being inspired by nature. But it was uh, to the waters and the wild. the old RTE series with Eamon de Butler and Gareth van Gelderen that really got you going in this area.
1: That's right. Yeah, basically looking at that, um, you, you, Crumlin is a pretty built up area yeah, and it was when I was growing up as well. But. Basically, that sort of, if you will, opened another window on looking at the landscape and looking at the world around us. And you started to look at things like the birds in the garden in a bit more detail. But then from that, you know, there was that element. And then there was things like, for example, Cosmos by Carl Sagan was on the television at the same time. So just to develop the general interest in science, which was basically encouraged, I must say, by the Christian brothers in the school that I went to in Crumlin. Um, so, and then following on from that, I was in the Scouts and we had opportunities to basically go out, um, particularly up to the Wicklow Mountains. And that's really where I first encountered bogs and sort of the vegetation. And, you know, let's be quite blunt, it was, it was quite a wet and soggy place, but it was also a very interesting place. You know, we re- I realised that, for instance, that water was a key element of bogs and it was also one of the things that maintained the streams that were draining them as well and basically maintained the life that was that was within them not probably the the, the conventional way of sort of being introduced to bogs I basically looked around, you know, if I was to just look around where I was, that the nearest bit of nature was the hedges in the back garden. So we probably had to go a little bit further than mo- some other people might have.
0: Yeah, and I mean, Catherine, you, you were brought up uh, in a dairy farm in, in Westmeath uh, and you said that your parents preferred being outside than inside, which is fair yeah. enough, I suppose, if you're farming. But something that you remember, just like Raymond, is Eamon de Butler and the role he played in your life was quite formative.
2: Yeah, well, he was always on the TV, and um, we grew up uh, watching his shows, and also David Bellamy as well. Uh, he had fantastic programs. He really, David was a real champion of the bogs, and he came to Ireland and he had his honeymoon on the bog, and he was so yeah, he was he he was um, absolutely besotted by them.
0: And and you said that Eamon, Eamon de Butler said that the, the, the wetlands are the kidneys of the earth.
2: Yeah, well, bogs are wetlands and, you know, they have this very, very intimate relationship between the, the vegetation or the plants, the animals, the peat and the water. So what whatever falls through the bog gets filtered down and then we have improved water quality. We have flood regulation. They do so many things for us that, you know, I only began to understand that a bit like Ray when I went out on site. When I went to college, I started to learn more about peatlands. And I suppose the hook for me was trying to restore them. Mm. So that was always my interest that I could see that these sites have been used. I was just sort of really intrigued by this idea that you could work with nature, take something that, you know, was drying out, mm-hmm. um, maybe the bare peat soil, so I started my research working on cutaway bogs, the industrial sites and I started up in Mayo and that's where I, I had to learn how an intact bog works mm-hmm. before I could actually restore something that was drained. And just before we, we talk too deeply about it, Raymond, I mean, do
0: we know how much bog there is in Ireland? Is that an easy question to answer?
1: At one level it is, but at, you'd be surprised at another level it's, it's really quite debatable. But look, you know, for a rule of thumb, we would say that between a fifth and a sixth of the island of Ireland is basically covered in bog of some form or other, or was covered in bog of some form or other. Now, clearly that varies by region. So, for example, if you go to the county Wexford, you'll be pretty hard-pressed to find a bog outside of anywhere that's really sort of upland area. But you go further and further west. By the time you get to Erison Mayo, Literally, we talk about blanket bog, and you really see it there because pretty much everything would have been covered by the bog in that area. And if
0: you think of Ireland as like a saucer, the Midlands being yes. the, the dip, yes. the, the wet area yeah, of Ireland.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. There's, there, you know, we we talk uh, we're talking about bogs here. Um, I suppose without wishing to get into semantics too deep uh, too deeply, we talk about bogs that are raised bogs and bogs that are blanket bogs, and we, when we go to the Midlands. We're we really talking about those raised bogs there, these domes of peat that are basically extending across the country and really are, are very, very dominant. Now, many of those are gone. So if, if people wanted to look at something, for example, like Bing Maps or Google Earth and look at the centre of Ireland, you'll see very, very large brown marks and that's industrially harvested peatlands.
0: And Catherine, just take us back to the time when the bogs weren't there. First of all, when was that and, and, and how, how were they born
2: Well, about 10,000 years ago, the glaciers abandoned Ireland and we were left with this wonderful, you know, gravel landscape, massive lakes all across the Midlands. And then vegetation started, and that's plants moving in across the bare soil. They began to fill in and the lakes began to fill in with what we see around the likes of Loch Rees, so tall herbs and grasses. And over thousands of years, they developed into these large domes of peat. But it just didn't happen by these uh, grasses and herbs. There was actually a moss that um, brought that peat right over the existing and surrounding landscape. So this moss is called sphagnum. It's a really interesting species. I get very excited when I talk about it because for a small uh, and very almost insignificant looking, when you see Uh, The individual plants, but it actually can create the conditions which make it hostile for other plants to grow, which means it makes the the environment around it acidic, which means, you know, very few other species can grow there, but also it keeps it wet. So it's like this big, fluffy sponge, Mm -hmm. which just absorbs water, keeps it there, and then it just keeps growing up and up, and it just brings the water table up around and brings a few plants with it. So it brings things like sun juice and insectivorous species and some of the heathers. So these are really specialised species that can actually grow in this very waterlogged, inhospitable environment. And so, you know, I remember reading the, the great cartographer, the late Tim Robinson, describing bogs as life swallowed up and forgotten. Yeah, well, he just was a poet in so many ways and he got it. Like Heaney as well. You know, these are like mind-boggling in a way, 10,000 years of history encapsulated. And not only that, it records everything that happened in, in and around those bogs. So it records when the first people came to Ireland. It records the history of agriculture. It records when, when the bogs actually dried out and they were colonised by Scots pine and oak and all these sorts of things. So there's a whole museum there, mm. in terms of the record, a
0: history book. And, and Raymond, this museum, you've accessed it because you get a big apple core and you stick it down into a bog, don't yeah, you? And well, you? pull uh, it out it'd and be
1: <laughs> a pretty big apple that's uh, nine meters thick. But uh, yeah, basically, that's what we do. We, and what do we, you we, see? we, well, we see when we we start at the surface, and as we, not too surprisingly, we see fresh mosses that Catherine has described, and we can go down. Um, Typically, you know, we talk about typical depths of about eight meters. But if, for example, in Rahin Moor Bog in, in County in Northern County Offaly, we cored fifteen meters of peat. That's two two-story houses on top, one on top of each of, of another, and look, basically, that's accumulated in the past eight to ten thousand years.
0: So, at the bottom of that core, you are actually seeing yes, history. You're, you're seeing eight thousand years ago. Absolutely,
1: you're seeing you're seeing the landscape. You well you're getting a very good idea of what the landscape was like 8,000 years ago. What did you find? Well, essentially what we're talking about, like what Catherine has mentioned there, we've got these huge lakes and we know that there were lakes there because what we see is we see, for example, we have these clays that are stripy. We call these laminated lacustrine clays. These would have been clays that would have been laid down year on year. We would have seen individual layers for each year. And then on top of that, very often we see something called shell marl, which is this white deposit full of shells of aquatic snails. And occasionally, if you're lucky, you can core through the stuff. I, I did this in Clara County, Offley. I, I caught down about six metres with my apple corer, if you, will, if you like. And we basically pulled the roots going into the lake clay from water lilies that were at least to 8,000 years old.
0: It's extraordinary. So you're really, literally diving you know, back into yeah. time. So
1: what Catherine was talking about is, you know, it, it, these bogs are literally, they are museums. They're one of the few places on the Irish landscape where we basically have a continuous record of the development of the landscape.
0: And, and Catherine, I just wonder, you know, for people who have never been on a bog before, you have to kind of get on your hands and knees and get wet.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: and, and what do you see when you do that?
2: Because it's a micro environment, isn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose the if you're on a good bog, you, you need your wellies. So, you know, if, if you're on a dry bog, you're not in the real thing. So when you get out on site, if you stand still for more than 10 seconds, the water is up to your knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you become one with the mosses and the insects and the t- tiny little spiders and... Then, when you look up uh you look up into the sky, and it's an absolute clear vista, so these are treeless landscapes. Mm-hmm. there are no no trees on an a natural bog in Ireland uh you might get them at the lag, which is the edge of the bog so this landscape opens up to a sky full of skylarks. You may hear a curlew cry in the distance because a lot of the time in Ireland now the curlew is is only on. The raised bogs that have been restored, so they're it's the experience of the bog. it's the wet, hopefully not a wet foot because that can happen as well, but you know just being out there, the open sky and and in a lot of places now they've really opened up the edges of the bog they're they're quite sensitive about it, and they allow for boardwalks where people can get out and experience more more intimately, what it's like to be there.
0: And, and on a global scale, mm-hmm. Raymond, I mean, how important are the bogs in Ireland? So when you talk to scientists, I don't know, like in Holland or whatever, what yes. do they say?
1: Well, mm. I'll give, they consider Irish bogs to be extremely important for one reason. You know, um, I don't want to stereotype that a lot of my Dutch friends are very careful with their money. Yet yeah, these Dutch guys basically invested quite a lot in research in Ireland, essentially because... The bogs that they had had been so badly damaged, as Catherine said, they didn't actually know how the intact bogs worked. So in the late 1980s, early 1990s, right up to the early 2000s, what we saw was a collaboration between Irish and Dutch scientists to better understand how bogs function, both ecologically, but also hydrologically. Now, what do I mean by hydrology? I, I know people don't like using jargon, but what does the water do? Where does it go and how quickly does it get there? And that's really what they were interested in. They wanted to know what was going on because basically all of their sites had been damaged. And in Ireland, we had some relatively intact bogs. I and
0: mean, when you mentioned Gerrit van Gelderen earlier yes. from RTE, I mean, it's one of the reasons he was a Dutchman. It's that's one of the reasons correct. he came to Ireland was the bog.
1: Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. So, you know, if, if you had a... Let's say we went back a thousand years ago we would have had bogs over very very large parts not only of ireland but all of northwestern europe but what had happened with the industrialization even from the very the later part of the medieval period what we see is that people begin to cut turf and very often they don't actually do it very cleverly. And what we see in, as a result is that areas flood. So large areas of the Netherlands where they had bogs, they cut them away and then they subsequently flooded. And that's one of the reasons why they had to get the rack together with the drainage and the polders and all of that stuff.
0: And, and one of the key things, I mean, it's one of the main reasons now why there's a focus on bogs it is because of their capacity to store carbon and suck it out of the atmosphere.
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: How do bogs do it?
1: Well, basically they do it like anything, like many other things, like the plants grow and as the plants grow they take that carbon out of the sky, if you will from the, as carbon dioxide, they suck it out. But the thing is with most other settings, when the plants die, there's lots of oxygen around and probably not that much water. So as a result, they decay quite quickly. In the case of the bogs, that doesn't happen. What you've got is you've got a water level under the ground that's really very close to the surface. So we talk about a water table. You've got that, then you've got a lot of carbon in this water. And the oxygen that's in the water gets consumed very, very quickly. So we talk about something called anaerobic conditions. In other words, there's no oxygen there. So the way, the rate that which the peat or the bogs begin to decompose, the vegetation decomposes, is much, much slower. And what that means is that we basically have a situation where the plants are basically growing and decaying, but they can't decay quick enough. So over the long term, we get a build-up of vegetation, partially rotted vegetation, and that's the peat that we see.
0: So this is just a huge load of carbon being stored in the
1: Absolutely, ground? Absolutely, v- and a very, very important one. We're talking ten, you know, over 10 billion tonnes of carbon in Irish bogs. This is a huge amount. Now, I, I think... I think
2: it's something like 30% of terrestrial carbon is stored in 3% of
1: yeah, it, it, like, the surface, which is
2: the bogs. And it goes back to, like... Ray has described it's that relationship between the plants the water and the peat itself so the peat must be wet for the plants to grow Mm -hmm. the plants grow the peat and then all together they store up the carbon in this massive volume of peat so if you tip any one of those over then the system, that system which is doing really good work for us in terms of climate regulation won't work as well. Yeah. And that takes us to the 1930s
0: when this soggy, boggy landscape was turned into a fuel source in what was, you know, one of the most successful projects in Ireland in terms of creating jobs and and a very hopeful national project at the time. Talk a little bit about industrial harvesting since that time of the bogs. I mean, what does it look like, Raymond?
1: Um, We basically realised, look, we've got a lot of land here that in the eyes of the people that were running the country wasn't doing very much at all so we they knew that they could use it for fuel and so the idea was born that basically we would uh, we would start to exploit the bugs on an industrial scale.
0: And when we talk industrial scale, I mean, obviously the, the kind of more uh, romantic notion is, you know, individual cutters out that, there. But look, just uh, describe what industrial peak extraction looks like.
1: Well, Catherine and I... Well, Catherine is, is far more familiar with this than I, but um, for, pe- for, for the untrained eye, which is probably more me than Catherine... <laughs> If you were to go across the landscape, what you'll see is you've actually, we've got very large areas where, um, where we've basically got a capacity to scrape off the surface. A bit like if you imagine if you were to go to the butch, uh, go to a grocer and you were to basically order some sliced ham and they slice the ham for you. We're doing the same thing with the bogs here. We're taking thin slices off. We're drying them out, and then we're using that either for fuel or, in some cases, for horticulture. Um, but this is really large-scale industrial production. We have power stations. We've got. We've. I've, I'm not sure if the, the, the statistic is still the same, but I'd, I think at one stage, Borden and Mona had more railroad than Iron Road Erin. Um, so this is really, you know, this is, is very, very intensive exploitation of the bogs. But let's be quite frank, you know that those bogs also gave people work. They supported economies in the Midlands and we shouldn't lose sight of that. You know, there's there's a great temptation to become very tunnel-visioned about this and say, look, this was an environmental catastrophe. But people did benefit from this as well and we need to remember that.
0: Catherine, it's an important point. I mean, you worked for Bordenamona for 20 years, uh, one of many workers. I mean, it it sustained the Midlands
2: for decades. Absolutely. And I suppose when it did uh, begin in the Midlands back in the 1930s, what you had is, is instead of, you know, a a people, a brain drain out of the Midlands, people were coming from all over Ireland. There was people coming from the Aran Islands, Connemara, and they would come and stay on the Mineral Islands in the middle of the bogs. And then they would spend a really, really tough summer in among the midges and all that, Cutting turf, and you know, over time that became more mechanized. And you know, in fairness, Ray mentioned it. it it's definitely not that idyllic, you know, going out with the donkey and the cart. These a huge machines going across the landscape. There, there. It's very, very engineered, and you know, you know, very well thought out. And I suppose the key thing that when Ray was describing, what does it look like? You can take that image that I described of the sponge. So the first thing that you do is you drain. So you cut a long drain. Some of these areas could be like 2,000 acres. So the massive area of land. You you cut the drains, you take off the vegetation. The drains are every 15 metres apart. So it's a very engineered landscape. A lot of the learning came from Eastern Europe, and from Russia. So Russia was doing the same with the peatlands in and the bogs in Russia and all across the Eastern Bloc states. So the Irish people learned a lot from what was happening there. When I started to work uh, in Móna 20 years ago, the focus was very much on, well, what can we do with this landscape now? How can we re-wet rehabilitate, restore, revive, bring them back to life now that we have used them. And and is it the case, do you think now
0: that the bogs are, are exhausted, that everything has been got out of them?
2: No, not. And, and I always say every bog is different. So some bogs have been scraped down, you know, that analogy that Ray used of the, you know, the big building and, you know, the upper floors or the top with the sphagnum. Some of them are down to the basement. So them, some of them are right back down to those sort of Rich layers where you can get nice, rich species with, you know, what we call fen habitats. But then some of them do have that acidic peat left. And they're really important because if we leave them drained, they will continue to release carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So they're adding to our our debt in terms of carbon. But if we get in now, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mean tomorrow, I mean now, and we block the drains, then... We are on a winner. Uh, Raymond, this is where you come
0: to life because this is the question of water and and yes. rewetting. And just talk to me a bit about what rewetting is and give me a picture of how it works.
1: Well, I think Catherine summed it up very nicely when she talked about a system there where we've got an interrelationship between the vegetation and the water. Now, what we've got at the moment is we've got a, if you will, a dysfunctional system in that basically our water levels are too low And so what we're getting is we're getting a lot of organic matter. We've got all that air with oxygen coming in to the peat and we still have quite a the, the peat is quite damp this is paradise for some microorganisms so they're munching away happily on irish peat and what that does is a couple of things firstly it gives off all that carbon dioxide that greenhouse gas that we hear so much about but the other thing is in some cases the decomposition of the peat breaking down the peat isn't complete and so we release some of that into the water and we have this coloured water that that basically goes into water courses. Now, anyone that turned on their tap and saw that water coming out would probably have a fit. So what the water companies have to do, so that could be the group water schemes, or it could be Irish water, for example, they need to take that out. That is expensive to do. So there's a cost associated with that. So if we can improve the quality of the bog, then what, we mean, what I mean by that is if we can improve the quality of the water coming off the bog and to do that we need to look after the mosses and the plants that are growing on it, then the quality improves and we save money. And then, and then on top of that then what we're also doing is we're reducing that loss of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And that's really quite important, particularly given our, the obligations that we have in government at the moment.
0: When we look at, let's say, a 20 acre drained bog that has grass growing on it now. Surely. And you talk about re-wetting. Yes. You're not metaphorically taking the, taking the drains. You're literally taking the drains out, aren't you?
1: The, the idea here is to bring that water level up. And by doing that, we create the conditions that make it more amenable for the mosses and the, the, the plants that would have been there in the first place to come back and to grow again.
0: So you're plugging the holes, if you
1: like.
2: Yeah, it's really not rocket science. And, uh, you know, I worked, um, I started with a team of diggers and uh, dozers down in Mayo back in 1996. And we figured out that if you just block the water... Don't hold too much water, a dash of water, not too much, not too little. Keep the peat wet, the sphagnum will come back. So that was in the west of Ireland. And then when I moved over into the Midlands to look at rehabilitating, re-wetting the Midlands bogs, you know, it's pretty much the same thing, but you probably need to go a bit more intensive with your drain blocking. OK, so you need to get someone like Ray in. OK, so we need Ray who can understand and map where the water is flowing. But it's not just as simple of, as where the water is flowing. It's where you want to block up water on the edge of the bog. Yeah. you know. So there might be activities on the edge of the bog that heretofore were facilitated by the drainage of, let's say, the Bordnemonas. So you have to work with the landowners yeah. and you have to engage to build this system back into its working order. You know, one other
0: thing that has been suggested is what they're for is to plant Trees, right? And this plan to, to plant trees on bogland, and I wonder—is from a scientific point of view, is that a good idea?
1: Um Well, I suppose. I suppose what we're saying here is like, can we take the bogs that we've got at the moment, cover them in trees, and get timber, and then at the same time offset all of those—that uh, all of that carbon that we're generating? And quite frankly, in most cases, the answer is no. There's been quite a number of studies done, including some studies that I've been carrying out myself in collaboration with some people from the Northern Ireland equivalent of Jagask, AFPI, and and DERA, the Department of Agriculture and Rural Affairs in in the north. And what we've seen there is that when we look at forestry and we take away the subsidies, in actual fact, what we're doing is we're, we're actually losing money economically, this is not a viable option. Now, in that case, we were looking at conifers, exotic conifers, seca, spruce and lodgepole pine. There's a great temptation to say, ah, yeah, but we'll plant it instead with native species. Catherine made the point earlier on, and I think we really need to stress this, that there shouldn't be trees growing on bogs, full stop. And be that the exotics or the natives. Now, there are other places for the native vegetation, but it's not bogs.
0: And finally, uh one bog in Ireland that you would recommend everyone to go to, Catherine?
2: Oh, one bog in Ireland. I would go to Knockmall Sheskin Reserve. In it's just beside Bellacoric. It's a small village between Cross Crossmalina and Bellmullet. Um You have to walk quite a bit. But if you want to experience a blanket bog landscape that, you know, all of the scattered pools, like someone just dropped a glass out of the sky, it's just phenomenal. Right.
1: Um, for me now, I suppose Catherine's, I'm, I've got a bit of a, almost a fetish for blanket bogs as well, but balance things out. For a raised bog in the Midlands, I would recommend Clara Bog, particularly if you've got a bit of a scientific bent. It's really a wonderful place, partially because there's a lot of what would have originally been there still remaining on the bog, but also because you can see quite clearly what the effects of human activity have been. And... Uh, You know, that combination is really something that's quite educational.
0: Fascinating stuff. Raymond Flynn uh, from Queen's University in Belfast and Catherine Farrell from Trinity. Thank you both very much.